Hey guys, great news for the holidays. Seasons 1 and 2 of Raise the Dead are now available on audiobook at raisethedeadpodcast.com slash complete. You can use Audible credits for it. I highly recommend that you do if you're like me and you got a few of them stacked up. Go back to 1960, Kennedy versus Nixon, one of the most misunderstood elections in American history. Find out how it connects to the big upset of the 2016 race and why the Trump campaign took their inspiration from the Kennedys. Then get season two, 1964, the biggest power vacuum in American political history and what it says about the election we just saw. Both audiobooks come with exclusives not heard on the podcast. RaiseTheDeadPodcast.com slash complete. Get seasons one and two on Audible right now. The following is brought to you by Dustin Campbell, Daily Tech News Show, Michael Bolick, The Joe Q Car Show, Frank Latuka, Andy Beach, Nick Wood, Jim Wright, Will Harris, and Craig. Politics, 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 politics. Ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the December 11th edition of the Politics, Politics, Politics podcast. We've got a great show for you today. First, a notice that I just want to get out there. Uh, A lot of people, thank you for reaching out to me. Our Wednesday edition of the show, the 9th, uh, if if you got the show acapella, I don't need no beat. (laughs) If you got it without any of the sound effects, or the music underneath it, uh, please delete and re-download that episode. It was a technical problem. Totally my fault. Not anybody else's or any podcast services. So totally on me. Go re-download it if you want the full experience. As for today's show, we are jam-packed. We're going to talk about Mayor Pete possibly going to China. Why would Mayor Pete go to China? I got a little theory in the back of my head. We're going to have our mailbag for you, including dissecting something that came up, uh, I guess it was two weeks ago, with Andrew Heaton and Jen Briney, the idea of Biden being President Grandpa. We dissect some of Gavin Newsom's uh, various different dividings of California, and we got more of the back and forth on exactly where the United States is in our COVID response, all that, and a conversation with Jared Novak of Upstatement. He's a a, a man who helped design the entire graphics suite for PBS NewsHour, and we have a conversation about graphical representation of elections and election results. You might have caught wind of some of these arguments on social media, the idea that land doesn't vote, people do, and so therefore we shouldn't just be showing maps that will 
continually have gigantic swaths of red while a few blue states dot the coast, and therefore that's a win for the Democratic Party. We get into all that and much more about just how data and data representation works in our modern political environment. Also, it's more Dio Illuminati booking. Both Dave Leventhal and Jared Novak, Daily Orange alums like myself. So we are everywhere. We are everywhere. And they're a lot easier to book because I know them. <laughs> but first! I don't think I've ever done this before, but uh, it reminds me of my son, Bo. Uh, and I know to, that may not mean much to most people, but to me, it's the highest compliment I could give any man or woman. That was then-candidate Joe Biden speaking in Dallas, Texas on March 2nd, 2020 as the clicks and clacks of the centrist Voltron formed. Klobuchar, Steyer, Buttigieg clamping on to Joe Biden therefore transforming what had only 72 hours before been a moribund campaign into one we now know successfully captured the White House. Joe Biden has been somebody that is uh, very complimentary of Pete Buttigieg. Indeed, even more so than Kamala Harris. More so than Kamala Harris. Uh, the, the people that Biden tended to praise the most was Pete Buttigieg and Andrew Yang. So the question became for both of them, where would they land in a Biden administration? For Buttigieg, who is far more establishment friendly, let's say, it was thought to be maybe the Veterans Administration. But this week, Axios floated this tasty little rumor. Mayor Pete Buttigieg could be headed on a slow boat to China. Well, probably a plane. Presuming that that's safe to do. But uh, Buttigieg to China. Ambassador to China. And initially, I was like, wow, that seems like, you know, normally when, when you take a vibrant political star and you boot them as far as you can around the world, that's kind of looked at as a demotion. You know, you are sending them to the dark side of the moon so less people can pay attention to them. But then I got to thank it. See, the ambassador to China is going to be a much more front and center role in a Biden administration than it was during the Trump administration, largely because Donald Trump, much I'm sure to the uh, uh, fury of the State Department, uh, which you saw on display during the impeachment hearings with Ukraine, was somebody that very much spurned the order of things, all in caps. Capital T, capital O, capital O, capital T. The order of things. Toot. <laughs> uh, 
And the order of things normally goes in statecraft, specifically with gigantic frenemies like China, that your aide talks to my aide and, and they go to coffee and then they go to lunch and then they go to dinner and then eventually... Uh, those two aides and have another dinner where there's a uh, the ambassador shows up of the home country and they have a coffee and they have a lunch and they have a dinner and then maybe both ambassadors come and then both ambassadors bring in the aides for uh, the administration and then the administration and then it's just a process right things happen slowly Donald Trump wanted to blow all that up and did. He effectively would just call Xi Jinping and just be like, sup, what's up? What are we doing? What are you doing? What are you doing right now? What's going on? We're just going to have a direct one-to-one conversation. So let's start there, that a Biden-China ambassador is going to be more front and center. You're going to see Pete Buttigieg's name a lot more than the China ambassador under Trump. Obviously, our relationship with China is going to be one that's very interesting to watch. Joe Biden ran on the idea that he was going to be tougher on China than Donald Trump was, that Trump was weak on China. So that means that Pete Buttigieg would be put in a position where he's going to have to stand up and say tough things about a country where he is living. Okay. But that brings us to this. Why would Pete Buttigieg want to go to China? Because the small town mayor that now wants to rebuild himself as a national candidate has one glaring hole in his resume, foreign policy. How do politicians gain foreign policy? Well, traditionally, you are in the House or you're in the Senate, you sit on a subcommittee, you go on these trips abroad, and that's what, in the eyes of our basic political arithmetic, we imagine to be foreign policy. This will microwave that for Pete within a year of him being out there. If this is indeed the case, Pete Buttigieg will go from small town mayor with no foreign policy experience to somebody with a lot of very relevant foreign policy experience. So if he doesn't oversee a total meltdown and disaster, that's very good for him. But here's something else. Biden's secretary of state at present is... A. Blinken. Did you say A. Blinken? No, I said Anthony Blinken. He's someone who's been around for a while. Let's say that he is somebody that isn't going to do more than a couple years, right? Secretary of States don't stay around forever. And very often they don't stay around between terms. So let's say that Mayor Pete is somebody that spends three years in China and then replaces Blinken as Secretary of State. 
If he did it now, it would seem like a rush. But after three years in Beijing, that would seem a little bit more reasonable. So there's my value bet for you guys. That's my value bet. That Mayor Pete Buttigieg will be the Secretary of State going in to the 2024 election, which I I still think will be Joe Biden, but this will be part of it, part of the transition to the future. Take recognized, young, fresh faces, polish them up real nice, so when Biden runs in 24, this is the actual bridge to the future. I know it seemed like there was the bridge to the future in 2020, but now it's the real bridge to the future because we got Pete, we got Kamala, and they're going to be ready to rock and roll to serve America in 2024 through 2028. That's my bet. They asked me, did I go deep in my bag? And I tell them, I showed it. If you would like to email the show, there's only one way to do it. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Again, TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Ronald writes, I'd pay a whole extra $3 a week for a podcast feed that did nothing but read from the Green New Deal and Sidney Powell's allegations along with some jokes. Every week. Think about it. $3. Man, Sydney Powell. I started following her on Twitter. She is... She's she's running in her own different bubble, right? I totally get... I, I, I get the fact that people are upset with media coverage because the if all you do is listen to certain elements of our our culture then the rest of the culture looks like a cartoon it looks totally unrecognized it, like it's as if you're going from the the, the real gritty noir world into toontown on with roger rabbit you know it's it, it's kind of crazy but ultimately especially considering the fact that we are we're at where we're at with um the president's Supreme Court challenges and what happened with Texas, you'd have to wonder whether or not this would have been a different, possibly more successful strategy if Trump's team were more cohesive. I know Trump is not a cohesion guy. He likes competition. He likes for people to fight with each other and outshine them. But man, did that not work when you're talking about trying to overturn an election. At least to this point. Derek writes, I feel like it's going to be very appealing for a lot of people to turn off politics and embrace President Grandpa. But I don't think it's as many as we think. I'm of the opinion that almost nobody got what they really wanted in 2020. Centrist Voltron decided to center on the least exciting candidate one with no real energizing policy positions, no Medicare for all, no UBI, and I doubt many many actual policy goals will survive a divided Congress. The people who actually care about politics will turn their anger to Biden 
and start eagerly, eagerly waiting for 2024, surveying the landscape constantly on the right and left, looking for a power player who can actually get something done. Deeper and nonpartisan programs like PX3 will naturally facilitate this. But I think even the mainstream media will start uh, pointing outrage cannons at the Biden administration. In short, you're still going to be relevant and anticipated. Cheers and thanks for all the hard work. Derek, I, I actually agree with you. I, I, I do think that it's going to be hard to go full Obama slobber with the Biden administration. He's not quite as important, not nearly as important culturally as Obama. Like the first black president lasts forever. I beat Donald Trump only matters for as long as people remember Donald Trump. And to be honest, let's say that the, that, that the economy takes a dip. Who knows exactly how many Americans look at Donald Trump going forward? Maybe it's not quite the demonized uh, way that we saw it leading up to the election, especially as hopefully COVID starts to fade. So I do think Biden's going to get more criticism than we might expect from uh, for a Democratic administration. And if that's the case, I'm, I'm, I'm all for it. My, my issue with the press was never that they went too hard on Donald Trump. I think some of the stuff was silly. It's just that I, I hoped that they would keep that same energy with presidents going forward. If we're going to be lowering the standards of the New York Times to a who farted and where gossip rag, then let's keep that some bitch going. I want to know if 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 uh, uh, Abe Lincoln is fighting with Joe Biden and whether or not Kamala Harris is is sharpening her ice pick in the corner, just waiting to seize control. I want all of that. Joey writes, listening to Friday's show, you seem surprised that Sacramento got its own California COVID region. Sacramento has a fairly high population when you include Roseville, Folsom Elk Grove, and Davis, plus all the surrounding rural areas. Pair that with a surprisingly wide hospital network with at least three Kaiser Permanente hospitals, Mercy General, Sutter General, and what is probably the, kernel, the uh, cornerstone at UC Davis Medical Center, and those are just in Sacramento proper. So this makes sense as a hospital region as everyone around Sacramento is going to come here if they have a problem. As a bonus, uh, th this lets Gavin finagle the numbers in the capital, where I assume he is, so he can go out sooner than if he were lumped in with the Bay or Stockton. Joey, to get really inside California, my issue is not that Sacramento got its own region. My issue is that Sacramento got its own region and all of Southern California got put into one. Like, not San Diego being separated, not LA, not Orange County, not the Santa Barbara region leading up the coast. I just don't know why they needed five and why of those five, they wanted to make Southern California so big unless this is just their end around for Gavin Newsom to put more onerous restrictions on Los Angeles to maybe give cover for the mayor of Los Angeles. But other than that, man, I don't know. And let me just say this. 
I've been getting a lot of emails about people being upset with their governors, uh, both on 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 both sides of the aisle. On on the Gavin Newsom's, uh, I think Governor Cooper in North Carolina got an angry write up in 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 the newsletter this week. Certainly, we've heard complaints about uh, Dewine in Ohio and DeSantis in Florida. You know, the reason why people used to bitch about Brian Kemp in Georgia before the election was because of his COVID response. So I I wonder if we as a nation are kind of hitting a breaking point with governors. If governors in this go-round doing the let's make it up as we go routine is a lot less cute than it was in the winter and spring at the beginning of the year. I just can't help but wondering whether or not America wanted a lot more of an ironclad, transparent plan over the summer. I do. I didn't want to be surprised last week by the idea that we were breaking things up into hospital regions. Now, it would have meant that these governors would have had to take that heat then. But that's your job, dude. And ladies, John writes, someone wrote in challenging your notion that the U.S. should be proud of our testing infrastructure. The author believes that the only reason we have such high testing is that we have such high case counts compared to Europe. Because if you don't get tested, uh, if you don't get, sorry, you don't get tested if you don't get sick. He or she specifically said that we are doing orders of magnitude worse than European countries. I'd like to challenge his initial premise that we are doing bad compared to Europe. Case counts and case positivity is a difficult metric because there's a lot of selection bias and differences in the availability of testing. One metric that can be a true metric is deaths to COVID per capita. Yes, the United States is toward the top, but Belgium, Italy, Spain, and the United Kingdom are all far above us in per capita deaths. We're also told that we're doing especially bad right now with all the traveling from Thanksgiving and the third or second or wherever we're supposed to be uh, uh, wave right now. But that same data asserted for death per millions in the last week shows that the United States is number 22. John, thank you for writing. I All I can say about the COVID stuff is that, man, I don't want to get into fights about it. I just really look forward to being able to look at data when things have calmed down because we're right now in these very political battles about it and anybody who I I think rationally wants to look at data knows that when it becomes a political issue, it, it doesn't help things. It hurts it. So boy, do I look forward to that? I I really, really do. Doc Scoop writes, hey, why do we vote for president and vice president as a package deal? It seems like it would make more sense to vote for them separately so that more people's opinions and views could be represented. But I guess that makes too much sense for politics. I'm sure I could figure out this answer within five minutes of Googling, but you have an impassioned way of explaining things that would be much more satisfying. So back in the early days of our union, we did have effectively the vice president would be the runner up. So 
in that case, Donald Trump would be the vice president to Joe Biden. Oh, could you imagine? <laughs> uh, this began to change at the turn of that century. So in 1804, the president and vice president were elected on separate ballots as specified in the 12th Amendment of the United States Const Constitution, which was adopted that year. And at that point, more and more states and therefore parties realized that they could run and be more effective running as a unit. And from there, it just kind of formalized and formalized and formalized. And history has shown that the candidate is named earlier and earlier and earlier in the process. So uh, effectively, it's just a thing that evolved. But originally, there was the idea that the vice president was kind of like an in-house opposition to the executive branch, which I think is pretty fun. I would love to do it now. You kidding? Nobody will ever do it, but who oh boy, could you imagine? Sean says, it's been a while since I emailed you explicitly about my bugaboo of elected prosecutors being the left's secret weapon to counter some of the worst excesses of conservatism. But let's do a quick rundown of real justice elected DAs and what city they now what cities they now cover. L.A., San Francisco, Chicago, Boston, Philadelphia, Austin, northern, the northern Virginia suburbs, St. Louis, and more. From, from the Roe v.ersus Wade decision to the Bork Supreme Court failed nomination, the right has had judiciary in their laser focus, and it has yielded considerably for them. And I would argue that prosecutors in the major cities that generate the most prisoners in the past will have an even greater impact on politics than judges. The school-to-prison pipeline being curtailed and possibly stopped altogether will have a virtuous circle of benefits from decreased budgetary demand for prisons to stopping the population shift from cities to more rural areas where the prison population is counted for legislative seats but can't vote, and simply less citizens are harmed by the criminal justice system. When the powerless is protected by the discretion of the prosecutors and the powerful get the scrutiny they deserve, we will have a more just nation and the general welfare of the people will be vastly improved. This also dovetails nicely with the defund the police movement in that the alternative ways of dealing with perpetrators and empowering the victims lends credibility to reprioritizing municipal budgets to address systemic problems in a new way. I'm not saying that we'll have bunny colvin hamster dams popping up everywhere, but there's going to be an ebbing of demand for putting dope on the table. He then says, this past sentence has been a lengthy reference to The Wire. Hope you've watched it. Sean, you didn't insult me until your final sentence. Of course I watched it. Season three is the best. Season two is underrated. Season four is overrated. Don't at me. And Sean's right. He literally emails me about this every three months. So now I've read it for all of you. Finally, Melissa writes, I just want to drop a line to say, I love the content. I think you do an amazing job. I know politics is, is an interesting place these days. And like I said in the stream today, I really appreciate the way you approach politics. It is different from the mainstream and it does not fear monger, which I think some mainstream outlets do. When I listen to your stream and podcast, I do not walk away from it feeling like I just got tossed a line of BS. I feel the content is well-researched and informative, and I really appreciate that a lot. So I want to say thank you for being amazing and keep up the great work. Melissa, thank you 
for writing in. And now I feel bad because I definitely read a mean email last week and I got so many nice emails. Thank you all. It really did lift my spirits. Okay, if you want to write me an email, doesn't have to be nice. I mean, it doesn't have to be mean either, but you can write me, whatever you want. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Ladies and gentlemen, if you would like to support this show, there's only one place to go, and that is TakePoliticsSeriously.com. You can get on the $3 tier, get the two bonus episodes each week, and, you know, even for a buck, for a buck a week, $1 a week, you can get the custom RSS feed and uh, make sure that you get the episodes early. But I want to take a moment right now to also let everybody know that we have a free political newsletter. It's at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. And uh, we just recently moved from MailChimp to Substack uh, for a couple reasons. Uh, Primarily because MailChimp is primarily e-commerce. It's for selling stuff, and I don't really have a lot to sell. I want to write every day. And, and Substack is for writers. It's built for writers. I like the writer's tools better there. And also Substack's free and MailChimp's actually pretty expensive. So there's that. There's also the fact that Substack does offer the ability for people to subscribe. Uh, I want to let everybody know. The free political newsletter, the five-day-a-week digest of stories... Uh, that I find interesting will be free. However, I I might do bonus stuff. I might write more. If I do write more, then uh, uh, I think it would be behind a, a paywall. So let me put it this way. You should subscribe to the free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. If you'd like to chip in for the fact that I'm writing a newsletter five days a week for free, uh, then you can. Totally up to you. But I got some ideas. Anyway, I would love for you to be on the list. Free political newsletter at freepoliticalnewsletter.com. It's got the best readers. I'm telling you. Freepoliticalnewsletter.com. Our guest today is one of the founders of Upstatement, a Boston-based design firm. And this guy's an old friend of mine. You know, it's a good time. I like talking to him. It's been too long. Welcome to the show, Jared Novak. Hey, so happy to be here, Justin. Thanks yeah, for having me. It is it is great to have you on. Uh, number one, because we are, we are longtime friends. But also, when it comes to... Uh, this particular topic, uh, you have spent the time since uh, we we met each other in college becoming an industry leader, and I have spent the time uh, in reinforcing my own ability to think that I'm never wrong about topics that I know literally nothing about. So uh, not much has changed since we first yeah, met each that, other. That sounds remarkably <laughs> familiar back to our, our college days. Uh, 
So let's start. Uh, you have, uh, uh, along with, with your company, Upstatement, uh, worked in many awesome graphic design and, and website, web design fields. Uh, but specifically when it's come to election stuff, uh, I know you guys have designed uh, uh, websites that are showing real-time data coming in. It's something that uh, I think is a point of contention when you're visualizing this is exactly what is the best way that we can, with our eyes, understand the data that is coming in. And I wanted to have this conversation with you now because I feel like everybody has spent the last two months looking at these websites. Uh, uh, and and now I think we have, we have very fresh opinions. So your thoughts initially on how we are, are best trained to look at visual data when it comes to election numbers. Yeah, and that's, it's totally true that the last two months this has been a big topic, but it's also every four years we kind of have the same like chin scratching moment of like, wait a second, there's got to be a better way. And then yeah. you fast forward to four years later and people kind of fall back to pretty much the same way that was done four years ago. You know, some lessons are learned little by little, uh, but overall it kind of resets to the baseline. And that's not unusual because you think about what's happening inside of a journalism organization, especially one like many that has seen you know, resource cuts and staff cuts. It's like, yeah. man, just trying to get the out of the door is the job and the chance and time to actually step back and think, well, wait a second, is this the, the right or proper way to represent information? Um, that often gets left by the wayside just in terms of number one, getting it done. And number two, of course, making it quote accurate, but yeah. accuracy is something very different than sort of like the correct representation of a story. And that's for, for this time around, something that we were really thinking about. Um, so we worked on um, the PBS NewsHour kind of election suite of graphics. And that yeah. was everything from the general election to the primaries. And honestly, even going back to the 2018 midterms, we were kind of building the infrastructure there for a overall system that was gonna span across basically every uh, federal election, be it you know, Senate, House, President, yeah. um, et cetera. One of the things that, that you saw a lot of over the last four years is, is Trump or kind of others in that orbit would flash up these maps of the 2016 election. You can see kind of this big swath of blue and just these little like corners and dots of red, uh, you know, on the on the coast and then Illinois. Yeah. Well, no, yeah, I think, I think, yeah, 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 the opposite, right? Red, red in the middle, blue on the coast. Yeah, the, the, exactly. the, the dots. Yeah. Did, did I did I flip it up? You there? did. You did. It's fine. It's early. It's early. All right. Um, and of course, this brings up the, the point that, well, geez, uh, all of that space in the middle, yes, it is a big amount of land, but it's not a lot of people. The people are concentrated, you know, in those cities, on the coast, uh, you know, Sunbelt, et cetera. Uh, Montana might be a big land space, yeah. but it's not a big population space. And that's kind of the, the central problem with that red and blue map that we are so used to seeing. And that's the thing that, you know, we're used to seeing because we're really into politics. Yeah. But that's the map or visualization that like my mom sees, my aunt sees, you know, my, the other people in our orbits that are not that into politics. But when you turn on, you know, election night coverage, or you're following the days after, you know, you're reading your newspaper or website. That is the thing that I think America is very used to seeing. And that visualization is fundamentally not showing what it's trying to convey. It's a very like, kind of like first draft that has become baked into coverage uh, across these channels. So let me ask you this mm -hmm. because every, I think that, that we, we can all agree that if you are looking at that and saying, 
does this explain the fact where, where here explains the fact that LA and New York have the vast majority of like the population relative to the rest of the world? You would of course say, Oh no, there's just another blue state and another blue state. There's no representation right. of that. However, every time that we do these cycles and there are new kind of stabs at trying to represent it, whether it's, big balloons that blow up or, or sometimes people get a little sillier with it and there's buckets or they just, I, I, I can't seem to, I have not yet seen something where I'm like, Oh, well that tells me a different story or right. that is something that I, 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 I glean a lot from how much experimentation goes into thinking, trying to rethink what, what you're doing. And furthermore, like, is, are we still even just graphically uh, uh, looking for something that does tell this story of population better? I think what what I see out there is that all of the ingredients are out there for telling that story better. The problem is there's yet to become a consensus about what is the proper visualization for it. Yeah. Um, the problem with the, the map that, you know, the red and blue map that we're so used to seeing is what it's fundamentally showing you is the relative sizes of land area. Montana yeah. is bigger than Washington, D.C. They both have three electoral votes. Yeah. And this is without getting into the wisdom of the Electoral College. Montana, even though it has an equal number of votes and thus the same amount of power in the Electoral College, on most visualizations, that's going to be 2,500 times bigger than Washington, D.C., not twice as big, not 10 times as big, yeah. not 100 times as big, but 2,500 times larger. So what do you do uh, to kind of better represent that? So what, you, what I've seen elsewhere are these things called cartograms, where you start to kind of like convert the shapes of states into other things. Maybe they're squares, maybe yes. they're hexagons. Yes. Yeah. There's these other ones that kind of like bulge out Florida and kind of like squeeze in Nebraska. And like the problem with all of these is like my aunt would look at that and say, what the hell am I looking at? Like, yeah, what, what is, what is thing, right? it's like it's like two transformers screwing each other. Like I have I have <laughs> no idea what's going on. The the top portion of the country is always like New England, which is a bunch of states on top of each other are all now bulbous and weird and it just it looks like a, just a misshapen kid like a, a kid's drawing of the united states that i don't know it's like okay well i guess we successfully all showed that all states are the same i guess but i don't know if that's necessarily the smartest thing to do no and if you have to have a little like uh explanation on top you know your friendly neighborhood <laughs> graphics editor explaining to the person who's having their breakfast what it is that they're looking at here it's failed, you know? And that's the problem I think with a lot of these like, um, quote, like high end visualizations that you'll see, especially like New York Times, Washington Post, where they're basically asking for a um, master's degree in data science or data analysis to even understand what they're showing. So therefore people fall back on that red and blue map. So that was the problem that we were kind of thinking about going into this election cycle and thinking, how do you take what people are really, really familiar with and, enhance it in a way that is actually going to tell the story of what the election is about. Not the, not the story that, you know, you as a partisan perhaps want to tell, but what the actual numerics of the electoral college are. So the solution that we came to is to say, look, actually the geography that you see, you know, the familiar kind of like 50 state map, that actually is really valuable. 
helping to show kind of like regions of the country, helping to show, you know, relatively, you know, this is actually where Montana is relative to Arkansas. Yeah. That is helpful for people. And that it gives them a sense of like, okay, this is the base of the U.S. that I'm looking at. Not the, you know, New England has a tumor problem that you're talking yeah. about. Yeah. You use that as a background and you say, okay, well, the electoral college is ultimately just kind of like keeping score on top of that. So our solution was to simply convert the electoral college to a system of dots. You know, you lay on dots on top of the Dakotas, lay on dots on top of California. Obviously, California is going to have way more dots than Arkansas. So you add way more dots and you show that those are more blue dots than red dots. And in the case of this election, you're able to then zoom out and see, okay, well, you have a um, you have a very clear plural or majority of blue dots versus red dots. Therefore, the blue person, Joe Biden, must have won that election. And you're doing so in a way that isn't trying to, um, number one, overwhelm, certainly in kind of like a red and blue type way, but also not trying to convert this into an overly complicated piece of information. I've seen things that try to like um, shade based on these values. You see other things that are trying to like group based on like population centers. And frankly, it's just showing you way too much information. All the electoral colleges yeah. is a weird game where there are 538 points available and whoever gets to 271st is the winner. Wait, and that's ultimately yeah. as complex as this is. Yeah, yeah. And and I think that that's a smart way to do it is just to represent those as your, as your Pac-Man pellets right yeah. and, and just like say like all right well that's that's what makes this different but let's let's go back for a second because you, yeah. you may mention to the idea of the partisan argument and what i presume you mean is are, are kind of the memes of like oh uh, look at all this the, the the gigantic red map with the the blue fringes right mm-hmm. uh does it matter to win that argument like is 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 at the end of the day is that harmful or is that just kind of a thing that circles around like i mean i I guess uh, obviously your job is to always make things clearer so i get why why you guys are thinking about it but on kind of a philosophical level does it matter if the the map is uh uh, largely red and blue fringes if we now under i mean we have all this other learned history to say Oh, but that means that Obama won, or that means that Biden won in in twenty twenty. I think it actually really does matter because it's giving you a impression of the political leanings of the country. And to go back to that Obama example, in two thousand eight, Obama, by any modern definition, won in a landslide fashion. Yes, uh, both in terms of the electoral college as well as the popular vote. However, the actual breakdown of Obama's red and blue map, approximately 42%, I believe, of that map is blue. In other words, even though McCain loses that election in pretty strong fashion, the majority of most maps that you would look at in a newspaper or on TV are going to be red. That gives people a false impression of politically where the country is. You give that false impression, that becomes kind of background information that people uh, inject into policy discussions, they inject into kind of political alignment discussions. It creates kind of a, a starting place for that Overton window that I think is, is false. I know it's false. So what are you trying to do? Well, I think just like you said with the, the red map represents a partisan um, interpretation of where the country or how the country should be seen. I've also seen what I would call white maps 
which is the democratic version of this. And okay. this is these white maps that try to show you, yeah, 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 but there's no one that lives in Montana. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah, 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 people not land and it's it's like all the, the, the big, it is just a population map and you just show that, oh, where all the people are all voted for, you know, the, the, the democratic candidate. Exactly, exactly. And I think that is also making a, um, it's certainly making a partisan argument. You could argue whether it is more true or less true, but it's trying to talk about like, you know, the place where, where I come from, which is a flyover state, yeah. as kind of a nothing place. And I can understand why people look at that and they say, well, wait a second, you're you're bringing something else here to the argument that is trying to dilute, um, you know, the power uh, or voice of red states or, or large area states. I'm thinking, and, and what we were trying to do with PBS is to come up with a system that isn't necessarily a compromise, but it's really trying to get down to the root of what the electoral college is trying to show and separating that from other types of visualizations. There are some very interesting visualizations that you could do to show where population centers are yeah. and how to vote. There are some really interesting visualizations that you could do to say, um, there's a, one that was going around after the election, it was called like the Purple States of America, showing you that as blue as Massachusetts is and as red as Arkansas is, they're all various shades of purple. You know, oh, yeah. even yeah. where I come from, it's it's two thirds, one third. But there are plenty of Trump voters in my neighborhood and there are plenty of Biden or Clinton or Obama voters, you know, through the middle of the country do not simply like pave over them with a red and blue. Again, that is telling a different story than the Electoral College. And I think that's important to separate when you're thinking about all these election graphics, which is what are you actually trying to show? And I think that on election night, when I think about tuning into CNN or NBC or reading The New York Times the next day, you're not trying to tell like this really complicated story of like population centers or man, no. we're really, we're really more similar than we are different. Yeah. That's not what it's about. It is a score. And yes. how do you show that score in the best way? I think that's what we were trying to get to um, in thinking about this election. I'd like to widen out the conversation here because you, you, you hit on something that I think is, uh, uh, I don't know if I've, if I've actually ever had this conversation with you recently, but I kind of feel like we're in this phase of, internet culture, which has kind of become mainstream culture, that data has never been easier to pull. More people are doing it. And yet I don't know if we're particularly getting smarter because of it. And, oh, yeah. the, and the old brand of like what data was like, which, which I think in a, in a bygone era of like finite media where it was like, Oh, okay. Well, the dictionary matters because people have spent their the, the the dictionary people all got together and they and this is their entire business and they've spent a lot of time and they they we know that it's important because they printed a book about it and so we're going to trust it now we are kind of exiting out of that phase of finite media into infinite media and that means infinite data and i, I think that this comes into the heart of like the crisis of our the confidence in polling and some of this stuff where it's like, uh, is what we are seeing making us smarter? Uh, uh, do, do you think that, that we, we are just maybe being tangled up uh, uh, in too much, too much data and too many practitioners that, that we need kind of some sort of redefinition of what needs to be paid attention to or what should be paid attention to? I mean, I think we should all certainly spend less time on the internet, right? That's, that's not <laughs> arguable. I mean, it's interesting to see there's kind of this phenomena of um, there's a subreddit called information is beautiful. Yeah. There's another subreddit 
called Information is Ugly. And one of the, where people post like, one is posting, you know, beautiful data visualizations and one is posting, you know, terrible ones, you know, screenshots from local TV and other kind of ham-fisted attempts that people see on the internet. And the funny thing to see is someone will post something to our Information is Beautiful and 20 minutes later, someone is reposting that same thing to our Information is Ugly, pointing out the thing that looks so cool at a glance is actually garbage. And yeah. Showing you a lot of like sharp junk to sometimes like obfuscate, or sometimes just because uh, you know people download their their free trial of Adobe Illustrator and think that gives them license to kind of like pull in all of these pieces, or you know kind of ape what they see in the New York Times or Wall Street Journal or Washington Post, and you realize just how complicated information display is as a. I mean, frankly, it's it's a science. It's something that really um, involves some specific rules, and these are rules that. Before maybe like 30 years ago, they didn't exist. Like this is a very new kind of like um, way of conveying information and, and we're still learning how that's done. Ultimately, there is a lot of junk out there, including by the way, a lot of the quote like high-end places. Like sometimes I'll pull up stuff on New York Times and, and I'm speaking as someone who has worked at newspapers doing information graphics, yeah. uh, worked online developing kind of um, methods and techniques to do like real-time visualizations or other sort of like user interactives. I look at these things and I'm like, what the hell am I looking at? It's trying to do <laughs> so much. It's trying to um, you know impress colleagues and others in, in, in the industry and totally failing at the, what is the story here? You know, what is it that we're trying to show? Uh, and that is something that I, I really hope, you know, going into whether it's 2022 or 2024, taking a fresh look at like, what is the story? And also what is its relative importance? Uh, you know, you bring up polling and, and I make this mistake too. How much time in our lives have we wasted looking at 538 and other kind of like number guessing sites, trying to imagine or like do our own math of what is going to be. Uh, and it's just such an utter waste of, of human capital. <laughs> I don't think that Nate Silver is doing anything wrong. I think we are doing something wrong in terms of like that, that endless desire to know the future and think that these are ways that we can actually see it. I, I, I genuinely believe, and I've said this on the show before that like, the 2012 Nate Silver, like is Nate Silver a witch? Like where he got all the states right might have been the most ultimately harmful things to happen to political journalism in like, we, we need to go back and all understand that was a fluke, like good to him. Right. But it, in the same way that like, if, if somebody does a trick shot in, in billiards, having never played before, like we have to understand that there's just going to be a statistical probability where that happens. And it doesn't mean that he's cracked a code and he now sees the matrix and he, and, and his magic number fingers are going to be able to, to tell us what it is. I mean, to me, talk about uh, data representation, obviously 2016, both Upshot and uh, uh, 538, you know, had these very simplistic numbers of like percentage yeah. chance to win Hillary Clinton, a lot, Donald Trump, a little uh, to whatever varying degrees. And then it turns out to be the opposite. And now, my God, so many needles. Uh, uh, the, the, the fact that like 538's prediction engine, uh, you had to scroll down like two pages of 
disclaimer of like, please don't yell at us. Uh, uh, this isn't meant to be a a basketball score that is updating periodically. Like this yeah. is, or maybe it is, but also it's close. But also there are standard polling errors. But also here's a cartoon fox. Like it's it wow. just, I, 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 I was. We're just in a total crisis when it comes to that. And also we have a staff of 30 who we have to still support. I mean, a lot of this like Nate Silver stuff, I and I think he has done a really good job of caveating to death all the things that his work can and cannot do. Yeah. Um, when you have a staff of, you know, 20 or 30 people, an entire website built around this idea, the beast is on the loose. Yeah. You know, the beast is out there doing its thing. Um, it's getting the sort of attention as a prognostication engine. And ultimately, it's a very, very, very well-educated guess, um, but it's still a guess. And it's still, I think, doing less than good journalism that's probably displacing in the world. And I, I think back to 16, um, when I think it was the New Yorker did a piece on like, what would happen if Donald Trump actually becomes president? And it was this like one blip <laughs> off to the side. Yeah. Ecosystem dominated by like, yes, yes, yes. But the odds are 97.6% according to The Economist and 91.3% according to The Upshot. And it's just a lot of effort, a lot of like human and journalistic capital is being put behind one type of reporting, um, which isn't totally invalid. It's just an incorrect weighting of things. And therefore, to go back to the graphics, we're putting in a lot of effort to come up with ways of expressing probabilities and like real time analysis. The, the, the needle, I think, is the great kind of like exemplar of that, of like, how do you show the kind of real time uncertainty based on what counties have reported or based on whether yeah. it is in-person or mail-in voting. And the truth is, it's not that the needle is wrong. It's that like the creation of the needle is wrong. It's that like thinking that there is some mechanism that's going to tell you the future is the perpetual human fallacy that should yes. be avoided. I get that's That's the thing is that the needle for what is happening in real time, I think is really important. It, like it, it, it is, it is good. Uh, I find those, you know, upshot needles on election night, very, very helpful to just be like, oh, wait. So they think based on the counties that like, I, I, I know X amount of how many counties are in Pennsylvania and which ones have reported and whether or not this is good or bad for uh, uh, one candidate or the other. They uh, obviously uh, know a little bit more. Go ahead. I think you're totally wrong, by the way. Totally really? Wrong. Really? Yeah. No, no, because no. Wait, hold on. Wait, let, me, let, me, let, me, let me just finish please. my point. Day of, I like them. Here's uh -huh. where I don't like them, and I think ultimately it might poison the well for the day of uh, application, is that it's tied to this thing that happens for the previous year. Right. And that it's like if it was just – if it is just a pressure gauge that we know, all right, it's a big volatile night, and sometimes it's going to bounce all over the place based on our, our guesses – then I'm good with that. I'm good with that visualization. I don't like the fact that it's the same needle that has been predicting what's going to happen for, for, for many years, because I think those two things should be totally separated. Absolutely. I think you hit the, the main point, which is that um, prediction and analysis are two different kind of disciplines and even borrowing the same kind of visual vocabulary. Yeah. Is, have, it's putting the viewer in the sense of, um, thinking that these two things are much more like each other than they really are. My problem with the needle is that it is, I mean, I saw 95% confidence Donald Trump will win Georgia. Yeah. Um, yeah. Obviously that is not what happened. I would rather see a needle that allows you to compare to the real time uh, reporting. In other words, a needle that says, 
you should have a low confidence in what the numbers currently say, or you should have a high confidence in what the numbers currently say. Not is Biden or Trump or you know Clinton or Trump going to win, but rather like, should you be looking at the current numbers that states are reporting and thinking that these are representative of how things will eventually be yeah. or are simply uh, early blips based on which counties or which areas are reporting? I think that to me is the a lot of these visualizations have said, don't worry about thinking, we're going to do that for you um, and give you some sort of absolute value in which you can understand the election. What I really love about um, the uh, kind of the magic wall guys that yeah. we saw on CNN and MSNBC is they're giving you the full sort of narrative and story explanation that you need to understand when looking at a map. And I think that's the thing that no needle or no, no sort of like uh, ultimate like number can do as well as a human, uh, whether that human is live on TV or that human is on Twitter, you know, giving you uh, 280 some odd characters at a time. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the, the Fox news magic wall guy always gets forgotten, but I, I, I liked him too. I thought, I thought that this was a great year for magic wall guys, but, but the Fox news guy was like, he just kind of felt like, like a, a, a very weary business traveler that you run into at an airport layover. Like he was just, he had, he had like a calm sort of like, sorority. he's like, well, yeah, you know, I mean, I just don't know Wayne County. Uh, uh, we'll see what happens, I guess. Okay. You know, I don't know. I mean, maybe we'll get on the eight fifteen, or maybe we're going to get bumped back to 10, but, uh, I'll have another bloody Mary, please. Like there's he sounds like a guy who's still waiting on his uh, pay to come through after the election. It doesn't, <laughs> doesn't want to say anything too strong. Yeah, no, it was, I, I thought, I mean, I guess then, Maybe that's that is in in our world of and let's 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 focus on the polling data stuff like what we need is not more faith in the numbers. And I feel like that is kind of where a lot of the energy has gone on those sites and really permeating out to all of, you know, journalism. Yeah. Uh, 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 political journalism is like, no, trust numbers. Numbers are what matter. Numbers are the thing that tell us, sure, you can have these hunches or whatever, but the, the numbers tell a different story. And it's like, no, we don't need more faith. We need to understand them better. And we also need to understand the idea that there's bad data. Like, it, and, and sometimes we know what the bad data is and sometimes we don't. And so I, I think the idea of like confidence, a confidence index is probably more helpful than like, no, 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 trust the numbers, but also trust that we know which our numbers are good or bad. It's like, well, maybe you do. It didn't seem like in a lot of cases, everybody was dead on this time and it didn't seem like they were dead on last time either. Yeah. It's garbage in garbage out. And you know, it's truth is like all of these, um, you could look at the polls this time around and say, actually, they, they, there was not any great error. It was within kind of like normal bounds. But ultimately, it's still just a too great an emphasis on polls. Now, this whole movement, you know, you talk about kind of like Nate Silver 2012. That was kind of like the watershed moment of like, do we trust numbers or do we trust what some reporter talked to, uh, you know, some guy in a diner in Des Moines? Yeah. And it is no doubt that that previous way of thinking was not capturing the real stories. Similarly, kind of work, I think, at the tail end of this era of like the sabermetrics of politics. Yeah. And we're ready for something else. We're ready for something that learns from this and says, yes, 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 we should ignore numbers, but also numbers do not tell the full story. Uh, we need to use these in conjunction with other forms of analysis um, that are going to provide the right context that people need to understand the election and understand their role and their choice in the election. It strikes me that. Um, 
in, in terms of chess tournaments that are done today, and, and hold on for a second. I'll all right. There. All right. All right. Now, now you're really peaking the depth. Although, no, chess is hot now with Queen's Gambit. So, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, it used to be you and humans. And at some point in the late 90s, the humans were defeated by computers. Today, the most successful um, chess players are human-computer hybrids, where computers generate options for the chess player, the actual human, yeah. to then make choices from in terms of what the next move is actually going to be. And I think the next era in what do, uh, you know, political reporting or election tracking, that's the idea that I think uh, I want to pick up on and I want to figure out. I don't know what that answer is, but I think it involves a hybrid and a synthesis of the data as well as the, the dude at the diner. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think also we're just due for a a big dose of we don't know like right. like let's stop pretending that if we stare at this at, at, at the flames long enough we're gonna see the future like th there is an element of uh, uh what we don't know and, and i think that part of the most corrosive element of our kind of big data saber metrics era is the dismissiveness that comes along with it mm -hmm. of just like shutting down or like look as as as, as crazy as they were like the the boat parades for trump like did not belay the fact that the numbers were saying that like, Hey, this is going to be a, a, a LBJ style landslide. Right. Yeah. And it's like, and, and if you said like, I don't know, man, look at these boat parades. You're like, come on, idiot. Look at all these numbers that show that it's a 10 point Biden win or whatever. Um, and I think that there is, I don't know, maybe, maybe sometimes it's like the, the answer is just, ah, yeah. Boat parades. Let's yeah. just keep that. Let's just file that away and we'll just see what happens as we go down the road. Well, it's like using Sabre metrics. Uh, the Oakland athletics were an incredibly successful baseball team. Uh, but Billy Bean was the first to say it doesn't work in the playoffs and presidential yeah. elections are playoffs. And that's where um, a different set of analysis or choices, I think are required to understand what's going on and to be able to intelligently you know, make, I, I hate to say make predictions, but be able to understand kind of the shapes of these elections. Yeah. And, and uh, obviously it's like that the politics has now become the one remaining monoculture. So I think that we're going <laughs> to, we're going to continue to deal with a lot of these questions as we go forward. And thankfully we will have professionals like Jared Novak of oh. Upstatement developing the visual way we understand the political world. Thank you so much for joining us, Jared. Hey, it's been a lot of fun. Thank you, Justin. And that'll wrap it up for us today. Again, thank you to Jared Novak of Upstatement for educating us on election graphics and, and the importance therein. I was thinking I was going to fight with him a little bit more, but I don't know. He's, he's such a... I love Jared. Happy talking to him. Uh, you want to know who else I love? I love everybody in our Titanic $10 tier. You guys make this thing happen, uh, including... I love you, TNT. Dr. G, The Gen, Kathy Mack, Headphones Neil, Onward to Georgia, Captain Bunzo, Jay Sulu, Dallas Danger Taylor, Middle-Aged Mike, but what happened to Tex? Get a bucket and a mop. Cujo, Idris, Jacob Wilson, Berkeley Steven, Justin Egan, Dotcom Junkie, Diana Sunny Smiles. Hi, Diana. Tempest Fugit, Jason with Magnolia Delta Credit Card Processing. Alec, Government Unfiltered, Andres, Archie, Darren, Adam, Jacob, Olin and Angela, DL, Kyle, Chad, Nomadic, Terran, Miranda, Janelle, Jenny, 
Robert, Paul, the most conscientious nonpartisan listeners, Brad, Richard, just another pilot, Frozen Summers, J. Pink, Andrew, and James. You want to join their ranks? Yeah, head on over to TakePoliticsSeriously.com. If you want to get, get in on our free political newsletter, and look, it's free. Five days a week, you're going to get a newsletter every single week. You do so at FreePoliticalNewsletter.com. Furthermore, if you want to get uh, watch our live streams, it's at, at Twitch.tv slash Justin R. Young. It's just that simple. Write into us. TheYoungAmerican at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter for updates on all those things. At px3tweets. Till next time, this is your old pal Justin Robert Young saying some shows talk about politics, others talk about politics, and still more discuss politics, but this is the only show that talks about Diamond Club hopes you have enjoyed this program. <laughs> Dog and Pony Show Audio.